One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something for you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, Well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to each and every one of us in love. Well, good morning. We are uh, continuing our sermon series uh, looking at different parables of Jesus. And parables are stories, and stories are, in a lot of ways, powerful vehicles uh, for truth and complex ideas to be conveyed in everyday and accessible ways. So Jesus used parables to explain stuff to his disciples, especially the harder stuff that they, you know, really struggled to get through their thick skulls. And the same is true for us, right? We actually need some of these stories, too, to get some of these truths through our own thick skulls. In the past two weeks, we've looked at uh, the parables of the seed and the sower and the parable of the hidden treasure and the valuable pearl. And this uh, morning, we're going to, it's actually a cool kind of parable the way it's set up because uh, there's a parable within a real story that happens between Jesus and a, and a woman and a Pharisee. And uh, the point that Jesus makes to all of them and then subsequently to us is that Jesus reveals his love for people through the forgiveness of their sins. Um, people often talk about uh, the weeks leading up to their uh, marriage is very memorable in the bad way, right? Uh, to their marriage ceremony of getting married. Uh, it's very stressful, anxiety-ridden, all that stuff. Um, then they say that the, the marriage ceremony itself and the reception is kind of a blur, right? It's just gone. And then the, hopefully the honeymoon's great. <clears throat> no one ever remembers the first week after your honeymoon. But Andrea and I do. And not for a good reason. 
I'll never forget, it was like the second night we were back. We probably had some, we probably went to family or something the first night we were back. So on the second night we were back, and Andrea really wanted to cook us dinner, right? She was excited. This was like our families, our first time sitting together. And we kind of felt a little bit like we were playing house, but we were going to do it. And so she cooked us up dinner, and I set the table, and um, I was encouraging her, and she's an incredible cook, and I was excited about it, and she was excited about it. Our first meal together as a husband and wife in our own home. So we sit down, and I do... um, what I'm supposed to as a husband, I reach out and I hold her hands and we pray over our meal. And it's this very sweet, tender moment. And I say, amen. And I look up and we kind of smile at each other. And then I get up from the table and I go to the fridge and I grab hot sauce and I come back and I dump it all over the meal. Right? Well, that's what you do, right? I mean, I like sauce in general, but I love hot sauce. Hot sauce is like my thing. I put it on everything. Uh, to this day, Andrea says that uh, I don't have taste buds anymore because I probably burnt them off from hot sauce. I didn't know that that was like not a thing you did. She was not happy. She was like, this meal that I cooked us for our family is going to taste nothing like what I cooked and only like your hot sauce. I didn't really understand. But what I had communicated to her was that I didn't appreciate what she did. My putting uh, that hot sauce was an indication that I didn't think her food would taste good, that she didn't work hard on it, uh, that it uh, needed something else. It it indicated that uh, her doing that wasn't good enough. And you know what? This is what I realized. Not that those things were true, but she was right. I was a, you know, naive 23-year-old kid who liked hot sauce. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't even think about what I communicated to her, right? And we fought about it. And I was a jerk, and I didn't listen, and I didn't think it was a big deal. So I got deeper and deeper into the doghouse our first week back. And finally, after a couple of days, uh, Andre, I realized that Andrea was just trying to convey her love to me. And she loved me, and that she loved us, and she was excited about our time together. And she was so excited, and I dumped hot sauce all on that love. And once I realized that, I apologized. And you know what she did? She forgave me. That's right. She forgave my dense, naive little man's heart and mind. And even more so, and this is how I knew that she really loved me in that moment. She said... That from then on out, I could put hot sauce on anything that she cooked me. As long as I took a bite of it first before I I put the hot sauce on there. And when I think about this story, other than my own ridiculous uh, behavior, uh, the biggest thing that stood out to me is, I think, her love for me. She had every right to be frustrated and annoyed, especially when I was unrepentant and didn't listen to her. And yet she forgave me. And I think it's in that forgiveness that I realized, even just that first week, that Andrea saw me and loved me and knew me. I experienced her love as my wife in this new way. Not that I hadn't hurt her before we were married, we were, but there was something new about it in, in our marriage. And this idea that love is experienced profoundly through forgiveness is at the heart of the story that we just read. Uh, Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. 
And these dinners, they, they were kind of more like banquets. They were pretty normal in this time. And a lot of people would be there milling about. Um, but there was one table that was kind of more for the honored guests. And they would sit together and they would eat. And then afterwards, uh, there would be a time for debate, riddles, stories, whatever. And it was during that time that Jesus told this parable to prove a point. And his point to the Pharisee was that the Pharisee didn't realize how much he needed to be forgiven. And because of that, he didn't experience love. And he didn't experience Jesus' love. However, the woman, a sinner in the eyes of the city, really experienced true love from Jesus. And she did that because she knew how desperately she needed to be forgiven. And this point remains for us. Many of us this morning um, are here. I know this to be true. I know this of myself and I know this of you. We struggle to accept the love of Jesus. When we hear the words, Jesus loves you, or Jesus meets you where you are, um, or Jesus accepts you through his death and resurrection, or that he's moving towards you, we've heard these things. We've said these things. And we've heard them so often, I wonder, do they mean anything to us anymore? Do we give them the gravity that they deserve? And we know them intellectually, but if we've walked with Christ for a long time, how much is that new to us this morning? Any? I think one of the main reasons we allow those truths to become stale or to forget them is because we lose sight of how desperately we need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And it's in that forgiveness that we experience his love in a profound and maybe uh, most impactful way. Because it's in the forgiveness of Jesus uh, that uh, we admit something, right? We admit that something's not right about us, that something's wrong, that the problem in the world is not out there, but it's in here. And once we lose sight of that, I worry that we lose sight of his love. We become like the Pharisee when really we should be more like the woman in the story. And so this is at the heart of everything we're going to talk about this morning. The love of Jesus is profoundly experienced in the forgiveness of our sins. So this morning we're going to look at three ways we can experience that by looking outside of ourselves into his love instead. And they're up here. First, we must expose our self-righteous hearts to his love. Second, we must submit our self-centered actions to his love. And we must repent of, his self, of our self-protective cynicism to his love. So self-righteous hearts, self-centered actions, self-protective cynicism. So our self-righteous hearts. If I ask each of you this morning who the villains in the Gospels are, a good portion of you would say the Pharisees, right? And this wouldn't be wrong. Jesus calls them a brood of vipers at one point. He's kind of constantly dunking on them throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what I like about this story, and this is good writing, um, is that it actually paints a relatively positive picture of Simon, right? Uh, the Pharisee in this story um, is not set up to be bad. Luke kind of lets Simon dig his own grave as the story progresses. He actually even gives him the benefit of the doubt. And we know this because in the first verse... It says that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. 
Now, most of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin had rejected Jesus. His claims of being a prophet and a teacher were so antithetical to their way of life that they didn't want anything to do with him. But Simon, he invited him to his house. He was curious. And like I said, these banquets were an open-air affair. People were coming and going. And, and even people from the city were kind of allowed to come and hang out and crash. And, um, you know, there was all definitely the social graces of not coming to the table, uh, letting the guest be the guest. But people were there. So, with that said, where does the self-righteous attitude begin to show? Well, the first place uh, we see it is when the woman of the town, who was there milling about, not invited, begins to come to Jesus and lavish him with praise, right? And the text calls her a sinner. Notice that her hair is down, which uh, leads most scholars and commentators to believe that she was a prostitute, which is almost certainly the case. So her standing in town was poor, and she was known. She was ritually unclean through all of the Jewish circles. Uh, And this would have caused a lot of anxiety in the Pharisees and the Jews at the time. And so verse 38 says that as soon as she heard that Jesus was at the banquet, she came. She she brought uh, very, very expensive oil. And she, overcome with love, weeps. And she uses her tears to wipe his feet with her hair. And then anoints him with the oil. And this is, like I said, where we see the self-righteousness. How does the Pharisee respond to this? He says in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was that was touching him because she's a sinner. And the Pharisee is assuming a few things here. Uh, He assumes this. First, he assumes that if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known spiritually the sinner that was touching his feet, and he wouldn't have let her. The second, he said, if he knew what type of woman it was, yeah, he wouldn't have let her do it. And then three, since he does let her do it, uh, he not only is not just not a prophet, but he's also not a good man for what he's doing. All of this is just dripping with self-righteousness, missing the whole point of what Jesus was doing and what the woman was doing herself. So to try to explain this, Uh, Jesus answers, and he's going to try to explain it to him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answers, say it, teacher. Now, this say it, teacher, could seem a sign of respect, right? Jesus is called teacher in the Gospels often. But really, in Simon's mind, Jesus had dropped from the status of prophet to teacher uh, within, like, five minutes. And so he's kind of like, all right, Jesus, tell me a story. Now, we're going to get into the parable itself in the, in the next point. But I just want us to see how self-righteous this Pharisee is. He's putting himself above Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Messiah that they've been looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years. After one interaction, he doesn't even call him a prophet. He just calls him teacher. Not even worth his time. Sure, I'll hear your little story. Why not? Do you guys ever think uh, back through history, during all the world wars, America's rough history at points, do you ever think back what you would do if you were in that spot? I think back sometimes and I'm like, how could they have let these atrocities happen? How could they have been complicit in these things that we know that have ravaged history? In the worst of ways, what could they have been thinking? I certainly wouldn't have done that had I been there. 
But we'd be wrong. Statistics say that almost all of us would be on the wrong side of history in almost every single one of those. Now, there are caveats to that, and there's always people that resisted and, and stood against hate and crime and death. But the vast majority of people don't. It's easy for us to look at Simon and think that we would never have done what he did were we in his shoes. We would never be so blind to our own sinfulness and so self-righteous that we wouldn't recognize the worth of the Messiah before us. But isn't that attitude in and of itself self-righteous? I think one of the biggest um, epidemics in our society today is a self-righteous heart. We see this in almost every part of our culture. The irreligious claim that the religious are backwards and dense and the religious claim that the irreligious have no hope in the world. Both place themselves above one another. Within the church, it's the same way, right? Whether it's denominations versus non-denominations, megachurches, non-megachurches, Presbyterians, Baptists, Anglicans. Each of us think that we are right and have the corner on the gospel. Each of us, in doing so, place ourselves above one another. We see this often in politics, whether you're on the left or the right or libertarian, we think we have the corner on truth, how the government should run and handle itself, and we disparage those that don't think the same. We put ourselves above each other. You see, what happens when we do this in our self-righteousness is that we put ourselves above one another at each other's expense. And we do this in our relationships, right? Right? Extroverted versus introverted, strong personality or mild, pick your Enneagram number. We place ourselves in the judgment seat against one another. There's one person in this story that each of us should identify with. It's not Jesus and it's not the women. It's probably Simon. No, we should find solidarity with Simon whose self-righteousness kept him from experiencing the love of Jesus. We too, this morning, are in danger of of experiencing the fullness of the love of Jesus Christ if we don't expose our self-righteousness to him and be renewed by his love. That is our danger this morning. And this is what I actually love about this story in a lot of ways. It's not that Simon was any more or less sinful than the woman. He wasn't. Or anyone else at the banquet. Or any of us. It's that he refused to acknowledge his sinfulness before him that kept him from experiencing his love. It's until the same thing for us, until we see ourselves in that place, in the judgment seat, as self-righteous, questioning Jesus' status and propping up our own, that we will begin to experience his love in the profound and freeing way that we have our access to. Simon thought he was blameless. That he wasn't self-righteous. And he knew that she was the problem. And it's because he knew those things that he wasn't. He didn't experience love. So are we sitting here this morning in our own self-righteousness. Thinking that we don't need to be forgiven either. I know that in a lot of ways, in a lot of areas of my life, I feel that. But there's nothing that saps away at love like self-righteousness. Because love is a fundamentally selfless act, right? 
In a lot of ways, Simon represents the furthest position away from God in this story. And it's because he didn't realize how much he needed to be forgiven. And so do we. We love because he first loved us. And we'll only experience that love if we come before him humble, contrite, with our sin and receive the full redemption and acceptance and grace of Jesus. So where are you this morning? Where's that hitting for you this morning? Is it politically in the way that you're distancing yourself from each other in that? Is it in relationship with people? Is it not even in the way that you move towards people, but it's all in your mind? Where do you need to let that go? Bring it to the feet of Jesus. Expose it to him and let him restore you in his grace and his love. It's there. It's there that you will experience his love. And that brings us to our second point. So we've seen that we do primarily experience the love of, of Jesus through forgiveness of our sins. So we must expose our self-righteous hearts to him. And now we're going to see that we must repent of our self-centered actions to his love. So uh, we're, we're going to see as we get into the parable itself, which is actually really simple. I, we talked about how parables are cool because they convey uh, complex truths in an easy way. This parable is wonderful. It's like two sentences. Um, it shows that uh, if Simon is not just self-righteous, but he's also self-centered in the way that he moves towards Jesus. And we see that juxtaposed with a woman who actually is the complete opposite. Her every action was for Christ and his glory and not her own. And this parable is about two, uh, a lender lending two people money, 500 denarii and 50 denarii. That'd be like um, a year and a half's wage and a month's wage, right? And he lends them money. They both owe him. And he forgives their debt completely, both of them. But what I love about this parable, it's in its simplicity that it's beautiful. The question that Jesus asks Simon is so fascinating. He doesn't ask him who would be more grateful to have their debt canceled. He didn't ask him who would be more relieved to have their debt canceled. Who would be more set up for the future to have their debt canceled. No, he didn't ask him any of that. In verse 42, he says, Now which of them will love him more? That is fascinating. What a question. And probably not one Simon was expecting. And so he answers reluctantly, knowing easily which is the right answer, right? And he said, The one whose larger debt was canceled. And then Jesus lets us into something that we didn't know. He says, You've judged rightly. And he turned toward the women and he said, Do you see her? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss. And from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. All of these things, the anointing, the kissing, the wiping of feet, they, they weren't customary. You didn't have to do it. Um, it wasn't something that was required, but it was nice. And for honored guests, you never would have not done them. And as a host, for the Messiah himself, the fact that Simon didn't do that for Jesus is outrageous. And self-centered. But the woman, she got it. She knew who he was. 
this woman, a sinner, a prostitute, comes to the feet of Jesus and she lets her hair down. And as a sex symbol, this would have seen, uh, been seen as truly despicable. But she does it. And she washes his feet and she anoints him with oil. She walks back every self-centered action by Simon. She walks it back and she lavishes it on Jesus instead. We often talk about being um, Christ-centered in our actions. But if we want to look at what it literally looks like to be not self-centered but Christ-centered, look at the woman who moved towards him at the expense of her finances, any social dignity that she might have had remaining, and personal needs and desires. She did it all for him. And what Simon in the room saw as potentially sensual was in fact worshipful. And it's because she knew that her sins had been forgiven. Many um, scholars wonder why she was weeping when she came to him. And uh, some say and wonder if it's because she was forgiven of her sins, uh, forgiven for being a prostitute and finding belonging in Jesus so that she was overcome with emotion and cried. Some wonder uh, if it's because uh, for the first time someone looked at her and cared for her, not for what she did, but for who she was. But I think this story makes it clear why she was weeping. She was weeping because she experienced love for the first time, maybe. The love of Jesus was so overwhelming for her that she couldn't help but be overcome with emotion. And if there's one thing that defined this woman to all of society at the time was her actions, right? Her vocation as a prostitute would have been the defining thing about her and why Simon treated her like he did. They were people, uh, which is ironic, is that they were seen as the most self-centered people in society, right? Literally being willing to sell their body for money. And yet Jesus and Luke turn this back on them and show them that her actions towards Jesus were anything immoral or to make a buck or some perverse kind of self-gratification, but were out of devotion because he loved her. I think there are, um, as we turn this to us, I think there's two dangers for us in this story. The first, that there's a real danger for us to try to emulate the woman in this story, but to do it in the wrong way. There's a way to read this story and think that because the woman did all those things for Jesus, she was forgiven. Look, she was overcome with emotion. Look, she anointed him and she served him. So of course he loved her. Does that mean that all the things we do is how we gain Jesus' love? No. And in fact, we know that just because we know the truth of the gospel, but we also know that in this story, uh, the verb that her sins were forgiven is in the perfect tense, which just means it was a completed action. So most scholars believe that she actually had had an encounter with Jesus already before this banquet where he had seen her, forgiven her of her sins, and then come to him at the banquet and gratitude, and love, and devotion. But this is the danger for us, to think we can earn Jesus' forgiveness. It's easy for us to serve Jesus in everything we do, to honor Him, to glorify Him, to go to church, to go to community group, to do Project Hope on Saturday, but to do it for self-centered reasons. 
There are plenty of reasons for this. It could be to make us feel better. It can make us feel like we have a purpose or that we have belonging or that we're part of something. And if we do that, we miss him. And all we end up with is our self-centered needs being met. But here's the problem. When we live this way, which I, I, I am prone to this, when we live this way, we know it's not right, right? We have a sense inside of us that th- this isn't going to satisfy me either. Part of us knows that we aren't actually finding what we're looking for when we live for Jesus, but really live for ourselves. So let me remind you this morning, your purpose, your need to be a part of something, your desire to feel better about yourself and who you are won't be found in all the things you do for him, but it'll be found in his love for you. That is the place that we need to look for. That's where we need to be found, is in his love. It's there we find our purpose, our belonging, and the wholeness that we search for. It's what he's done for us on the cross, not what we can do to earn his love. Embrace that. Experience his love. That is what we can learn from the woman of this story. It was out of a response to her forgiveness that she was devoted to him. Here's the second danger from the story. It's how easy it can be to willingly refuse to serve Jesus for our own self-centered reasons. So if emulating the woman would lead us to serving him in a self-centered way, emulating Simon would lead us to refuse to serve him. We do this, I think, subconsciously and consciously. But often we, we do move towards Jesus as Simon did, as if he isn't worth it. Or that living for him is only worth it uh, when it benefits us. Or when it lines up with what we think we should do. Or when it's easy. But when it gets hard, or when it gets, calls us to something that we don't want to do, when living for Jesus pushes on us a little bit, what's our tendency? We bail. We're out. We go right back to doing what we want to do and who we want to be. But if we refuse to follow Jesus when it gets hard or when it no longer benefits us, we're not living for him. We're living for ourselves. This is perhaps where we need to repent this morning. So where are you willingly refusing to repent of your self-centered following of Jesus and embrace once again his love for you and your forgiveness, your new status as his son and daughter and allowing that to be what guides you into, into serving him, into honoring him, into glorifying him? And this brings us briefly to our final point. So we've seen that um, we experience uh, the love of Jesus through the forgiveness of our sins. So we must expose our self-righteous hearts, submit our self-centered actions, and now we're going to repent of our self-protective cynicism. And we see this in the last verse, and I am going to be brief. The final characters of the story come into play. It's all those at the banquet. And it says, Jesus uh, said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is an interesting way to end this story. Remember, we talked about how Jesus and the woman almost certainly had an encounter before. Uh, so why would he publicly forgive her sins here? The reason is so that those at the banquet would know that she was forgiven. That she was no longer the sinner and the outcast in the society that she had been up to this point. 
It was a public affirmation of her new status. Clean, forgiven, whole, loved. This is why he says go in shalom, go in peace. A wholeness to her as she returns to society as a new person. Not her devotion, not her tears, not her oil that saved her, her faith. And how do they respond? They say, who is this? Who even can forgive sins? And this response I resonated with. They were cynical. But do you know why I think they were? I think they were cynical because they were hoping on one level that it might be true. That maybe that it was too good to be true. Could this be the one that they were waiting for? Surely not. Because if it were true, what would that mean? Everything would change. And I I resonate with this because I think deep down I feel the same way. Remember we started this morning talking about whether or not we truly believe the things we say about the gospel, right? Do we truly believe that we are loved and accepted, forgiven, that Jesus is actually worth living for? We believe these things intellectually, but they're bearing on our lives. Have we let them become stale? Have we grown in cynicism and not in grace? Cynicism has become a virtue in our society. We're cynical about everyone's intentions, actions, desire, and scandal after scandal has proven this in celebrities and politicians and athletes. We live in an age of cynicism. And I worry that it's going to seep into our faith. Cynicism is believing that someone is motivated by self-interest, distrustful of sincerity or integrity. Do we believe that about Jesus? Do we believe that he's motivated by self-interest? Of course not, right? But do we act that way? I think so. We hide behind our cynicism because we're worried that if we believe what Jesus says about us, if we believe that it's really true, what does that mean for us? Everything might change. And that's scary. It's a lot easier to hide behind our cynicism, right? That can't be true. That might be true for them. It's not true for me. That actually can't be true all the way down at that dark place in my heart that I don't talk about. That grace couldn't be for that place. That love couldn't be for there. That's a lie. It is true for you there. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims you as his own. Despite your sin, despite your addictions, despite your shame, he died for you. And he loves you. And there is nothing that can keep you from that love. So come to him. Come and taste and see his goodness and his love because it is yours this morning, I promise. Not because I'm saying it, not because we hear it in the liturgy or even that we come to it, because he says it's true. Believe him. Believe his claim over you this morning. Don't buy the lie of cynicism. He is true, he is good, and he paid it all for your sake and for mine. That's love. Believe it this morning. Um, I am happy to report 
that Andrea and I have gotten to a place where I can put hot sauce on things without disrespecting her. She doesn't require me to take the bite anymore. Um, And I think part of that is because I have hurt her far deeper in our 10 years together than putting hot sauce on food. And I've experienced her love for me in the most profound ways throughout our lives together by the way that she has stuck by my side, loved me, forgiven me, despite all of my faults and failures and screw-ups. That first week of marriage was just a taste of the grace and love that she has had for me every single year since. A love that I, frankly, don't feel like I deserve. But think about it this way. The woman in this story was that overcome with the love for Jesus, and she didn't even know what his forgiveness would cost him. In the same way that I got a taste of that in my first week of marriage, she only had a taste of what we know for certain. We know what that forgiveness cost Jesus. We know that he had to go to the cross, that he had to take my sin, my brokenness, my shame, and yours too, and he took it all on himself and he died. He allowed it to crush him so that we could find life and love and life eternal with him. That is the love that we have this morning. Do not forget that sacrifice and how important that forgiveness is because when we lose sight of that, we will lose sight of his love. Amen.